Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Faces of TBI podcast series. I am Amy Zellmer, founder of FacesofTBI.com and your host. Today, I will be chatting with author Amy Hayes about her brain injury recovery. This episode is brought to you by Midwest Functional Neurology Center, a Minneapolis-based clinic staffed by caring and progressive team of functional neurologists who are experienced in treating post-concussion syndrome, chronic pain, dizziness, whiplash, and migraines. They are the concussion doctors you can trust for comprehensive brain health in the Midwest. They have greatly helped me and many others. You can find them online at mnfunctionalneurology.com. Hello, I am Amy Zellmer, and you're listening to Faces of TBI, a podcast series for survivors by survivors, raising awareness about traumatic brain injury, one podcast at a time. Those of you who might not be familiar with who I am, I am a TBI survivor from a fall on the ice in February of 2014. I'm a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post, Thrive Global, and the Goodman Project, and I volunteer on the Brain Injury Association of America's Advisory Council. And I recently released my second book, Embracing the Journey, Moving Forward After Brain Injury, which received a silver medal in the Midwest Book Awards. You can learn more about me and the podcast at facesoftbi.com. And you can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Zellmer. And don't forget to join my Facebook group, Amy's TBI Tribe, Connect other survivors, caregivers, and loved ones. So today my guest is Beanie Hayes, and me is a New York-based comedian, author of the memoir, I'll Be Okay, It's Just a Hole in My Head. A former high school teacher, Hayes writes about her first humorous memoir while recovering from a traumatic head injury at the age of 22. She's currently adapting the book into a one-woman show for the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, as well as a, com- a, com- a comedic TV series. Catch her newest show, Mimi in the Brain, a comedic neuroscience podcast, available now on all streaming devices. So welcome to the podcast, Mimi. I am so happy to have you here today. Hey, thanks so much for having me on the show. This is great. Yeah, well, I'm really happy to have you here and just have you share your story today and, you know, just give our listeners um, some just really positive inspiration. Um, You know, some days we need it more than others. So I'm glad to have Mm -hmm. you here. I had the pleasure of meeting you when I was in Arizona. Oh, gosh, Mm -hmm. when were we there? May? May, yeah, (laughs) May. It's like, I just... You can't even, I've been so screwed up with the 4th of July holiday. I don't know what day of the week it is. <laughs> same, so, same. <laughs> so Mimi, why don't you uh, start by just sharing uh, what happened, how you acquired your brain injury? Yeah, it was actually in the same year as uh, your injury. Um, mine was actually in the fall of 2014. And by that point in time, I was living in Colorado, and um, I was trying to be a high school teacher. And to to become a high school teacher, you need to do student teaching. And so I was about five days into my student teaching semester with a bunch of kids, um, you know, high school kids, just really trying to kind of start my adulthood. And I was 
starting to have all these symptoms and I was really dizzy, um, really, really tired. Uh, I was getting some migraines and I just kind of initially wrote it off as like, okay, well, this is just what it's like to be a teacher. You know, this is just kind of the symptoms that come with being a first time teacher. Um, Quickly, though, I ended up um, in the ER with my mom, um, who was pretty concerned at that point, and I had been misdiagnosed several times with anything from ear infections to vertigo to you're just a sick millennial, you know, we really know what to do with you. You're too young, you know, you're too young to have anything wrong with you. Yeah, you know, millennials, like, oh, what, have you had a breakup recently? Like, you're probably depressed, you know. Um, So it really wasn't, my symptoms were not taken seriously um, by me or my medical team. Um, But luckily, my my mom was pretty concerned and took me to the ER several times. Um, By that point, I was really, really sick. I couldn't even really move my head without, like, throwing up. It was this kind of weird vision if I'd moved my eyes you know, things were getting really crazy. So um, finally, after my mother um, threatened them, (laughs) uh, we did an MRI and they found that I had a cavernous angioma, uh, which is a little clump of cells that I was born with apparently. Um, And they're pretty, I mean, they're not pretty common, but um, you can have them anywhere in your body. And that's just kind of what I was born with. And then uh, they think because of stress or something else, um, that it hemorrhaged inside of that little structure. And that was what was causing all the weird vertigo like symptoms and the fatigue and the migraines. And, um, at that point they said, you know, we don't want to touch it right now. It could be too dangerous. So we're going to let it sit for a little while. See if it, uh, goes away on its own. Cause sometimes they do shrink up on their own. Um, I went on bed rest for about four weeks and, wasn't teaching during that time, you know, (laughs) Um, retired from the classroom at that point because I couldn't, you know, carry on. And um, then over that month, I started to really get these stroke-like symptoms, which I didn't know um, anything about strokes or what they look like or what you're supposed to look out for. (laughs) Um, And we weren't really told anything like that either. So um, over that course of that month, I lost mobility in my left side of my body. Um, I was seeing double and eventually sideways. Um, And my speech was getting a little crazy as well, a little slower. Um, And then when I couldn't taste anymore, then they decided that they were going to do a brain surgery um, because it was getting closer to my brainstem. So um, we did the brain surgery October 3rd, 2014, and I did some intensive rehab for about two weeks to relearn how to walk and see. And then by January, the next year, I was back in the classroom teaching. Um, so that's kind of the short version <laughs> of what happened. And, um, I've just been kind of trying to understand that ever since, <laughs> you know, and it's gotta be absolutely frightening to be whole, be told that you have this like bleed in your brain, but we're just going to leave it for a little while. <laughs> that has mm-hmm. been yeah. like terrifying. Um, I know well, some I mean, aneurysm I really survivors. Yeah, uh, you I were mean, kind I of in really denial. Yeah, uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, and isn't it frustrating how 
doctors just don't take things seriously. And, and I mean, I get it. You, you didn't have a specific incident, right? Like you didn't have a car accident or you didn't hit your head on mm-hmm. anything. Like there was really no reason to think there was something wrong with you, but at the same mm-hmm. time, like you're exhibiting these weird symptoms and it's so frustrating how slow to act uh, some doctors can be. And I'm, I'm really surprised the ER didn't do a simple CT scan early on. Like they would have found it right away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, something must've been going on because I, did, I figured this out later. I asked my mom, you know, did they catch the double vision, you know, in the first ER? She said, yeah, because they did the test and you said you were seeing double and they still didn't do anything because I was like oh surely if they found the double vision they would have like surely done a scan but they did find it um and I remember distinctly in the first ER being like ah mom you have four noses like that's pretty silly like (laughs) and they just still didn't do anything and I think when you're a young person especially um they're not going to want to diagnose you or try to really they're going to want to just manage the symptoms and send you on your way, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and you were, you were 22 at the time, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, and I think that's such an important message to get out there. Um, you know, you were born with this particular formation in your brain. Um, you can also be born with um, aneurysm in your brain. Uh, you know, you can have a stroke, you can have an aneurysm. You, there's so many things that can happen when you're young, but we only like equate them with being old. And I don't quite Mm -hmm. know why we have such a mindset around that. Um, But like, I've met little guys that years old and had a stroke, you know, I mean, it can happen at any age and, you know, you didn't know the signs and symptoms to watch for, for stroke and you were 22, right? Like Mm -hmm. it seems like by 22, you should know those things, but we don't, you know, like, think those things are going to happen to you when you're in your 20s you're you're um invincible when you're in your 20s mm-hmm. um so mm-hmm. I think it's so important to shed light on these things um and really you know bring it to the surface that these things can happen at any age it can happen at anyone right like mm-hmm. injuries to screen all yeah, exactly. And I think we're probably too afraid to really acknowledge that, that it really doesn't discriminate. And um, because of that, we just say, oh, no, it's fine. It'll just happen when you're older and just endure your, you know, your health. It's like, okay, uh, you can be unhealthy at any any stage of your life. It doesn't matter <laughs> even how healthy you appear to be. You know, I was a hockey player. I was training for a half marathon. I was, you know, like – in my prime, I guess, you know, and that's when it happened to me. So really like we have to stop thinking that it looks a certain mm-hmm. way when it really could happen exactly. to anybody at any time. Exactly. So Mimi, tell us when did you begin writing um, your memoir? It'll be okay. It's just full in my head, which I have a link in the show notes for anyone that wants to check that out. Um, but when did you start writing that? When did you have thought or how did it, how did it start? Yeah. So um, I didn't originally like writing. Um, I was something that I just really didn't enjoy doing at all in my, you know, college years. But then um, 
about a week after I was diagnosed and things started to kind of slowly get worse with my body um, and I was getting, you know, pretty depressed about what was happening to me. I didn't really understand it. Um, I was still kind of joking about it really in dark ways to my friends who were coming over and one of my friends took me on a walk and by that point I couldn't really walk on my own so I had to have um, chaperones and were kind of dragging my my little disabled self through the neighborhood and we sat down and she said hey you know um, you should write a book I mean this is crazy and I'd also been uh, dumped a few months before from a, my biggest my only and biggest you know relationship and so it was kind of this double whammy of a heartbreak and a brain hemorrhage and I was like wow my life is really not great right now and she said hey you should write a book about this 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 is really crazy um and so I just kind of went back to my laptop and opened up a word document and I said I'm writing a book and by that point I couldn't really type with my left hand so I was just typing with my functioning right hand and I was like, wow, this is going to take me a long time if I really can't use my left hand. <laughs> um, and so that's how I started the book. It was just completely a joke. It was just a way to kind of filter what was happening to me and tell a story that I could tell by myself and try to understand what was happening. And then it became a purpose when I was in the hospital and I was wanting to document all the, I mean, it was, it was happening in real time. You know, every, I couldn't write that book now, five years out. You know, I, I couldn't remember half the stuff that happened to me or the people that I met. And because I wrote it at the time when it was happening to me, things are pretty accurate. You know, they were happening in the moment. So um, I'm grateful that I w- was given that suggestion from a friend because I wouldn't have come up with that on my own. <laughs> hmm You know, and I get asked all the time, and I'm sure you probably too, by other survivors, you know, how did you write your book? And, you know, for everybody, it's so different. For me, I was just writing blog posts. I was writing on the Huffington Post. I had no intention of a book. Like, it it didn't even cross my mind um, until I met, um, I, I joined a writing group, and they were like, oh, my God, Amy, you can turn this into a book. And I'm like, I have no idea how to do that. And they're like, mm-hmm. well, we can do. We can help you. Um, so, you know, I just – I had just amazing people come into my life at the right time. And sort of like you, you know, your friend telling you you should write about it. Um, and so everybody's journey is so different on how they begin to write a book. Um, but what mm-hmm. advice would you give for somebody listening who does want to write a book or, you know, they're, they're just, they have no idea how to even go about getting started. Um, what advice would you have for them? Yeah. You know, I was really lucky in that, um, about a year or so after, um, the head injury, I did become a teacher <laughs> full time. And, um, one of my friends that I became best friends with in the school was a writer. And we kind of learned that we both had these double lives that we were living. (laughs) And so we were both teach during the day, but then we would like get together at night and we'd write, or we would go on the weekends and meet at coffee shops and we would write together and read each other's work and give each other feedback. And it was this like undercover life we were living. Um, And I would say the first thing I would recommend is getting a mentor, you know, finding someone who believes in you, who will read your work and you can help each other. A writing group is great. Um, 
you know, being open to feedback from someone that you trust and who wants you to be better. You know, I, I don't think I'd advise going to like big, huge workshops where you're going to have your stuff critiqued right away by perfect, you know, you don't need, you don't need that. <laughs> your stuff is very vulnerable. It's very personal, especially if you have a, a memoir or a true story about something very serious that happened to you. You don't want to just expose it right away. You want to have it kind of held and you want it to be taken care of. And um, I would really recommend having friends, people that you trust, um, read it in its early stages, give you feedback and advice, talk with you about it. Um, just sitting at a coffee shop with somebody and both writing your own pieces is huge, you know, because you feel like you're a part of something that's bigger than you are and you're supported in that. Um, so that would be the first thing I would say. Um, you know, the next thing I would say is just if you can um, surround yourself with creative people at all, um, you know, sometimes if you have a, a job and you're working a lot, um, it's kind of nice to be around people who are also pursuing things outside of that and who are writing, if they're writing books or if they're painting or if they're doing something else, you know, you just want to surround yourself with creative people because they're never going to say, oh, it's ridiculous or, oh, a book, really? Like, you can't do that. You know, you definitely want to be in a supportive environment. And that's the only way that your work, your book can come into the world is if it's supported. And um, I was lucky that I found a group of people, um, especially that mentor, that were there for me in the very early stages of that. And mm-hmm. I think also just the, the, the myth that um, you don't have time to write a book, that's also just a myth. Um, I was a full-time teacher and I was working 80 hours a week. Um, I wrote a book in, you know, it, it took me four years because of that, <laughs> but, um, you can find the time you can make the time. It's just about what you're willing to sacrifice and finding a schedule that works for you. You know, maybe you can't write every day. Maybe Saturdays is your sacred day and you pick a day that is very special to you that you tell yourself, I have permission to write on this day and not do anything else. And that was, you know, what I did on Saturdays mostly was just kind of write the book at the coffee shop with my friends and get inspiration from that. And, you know, this myth of like, you have to be working on it 24 seven. It's just not realistic for most of us. Like it's just not. So um, finding a way to work writing into your current life and what you're willing to do to make that look a certain way for you is what I would recommend. Yeah. All really great points. And I, you know, I would just add to that to just start writing, you know, like Mm -hmm. you did, you opened a word document, you started writing. Um, And in the beginning, it doesn't even have to, like, you don't have to know the path it's going to take, right? Like people like to do an outline and and have like a nice, neat, tidy path of what the book is going to be. But you might not know that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, you might, you, you know, I have to say something. I mean, I mean, I have met writers recently who are able to actually outline full bodies of work on note cards before they ever touch the page. That is great. I have never been that person myself, and I don't know a whole lot of people that are. Um, and as I teach writing now, and a lot of my students are like, "Well, I need a plan. I need." I'm like, "No, no, no. You'll find your way." I mean, if you have a story, it will unearth itself. 
I mean, it's going to mm-hmm. be work. You kind of got to dig around and you might need editors or you might need, you know, people to read it and to say, Hey, what are the themes of this piece? And what's, you know, but that's the beauty of an editor. You know, that's not even necessarily mm, yeah. your job at first. Like your job is not to like find the perfect roadmap. Your job is just to tell the story and someone else can help you find the map later, you know? And that was what happened with me. I had a book that I wrote when my brain was bleeding and it didn't make any sense. And it wasn't really a story. And it was just a bunch of, I don't know, 50 chapters of weird stuff about me in hospitals. And it wasn't until about my second year when um, I reached out to an editor and I said, Hey, I'm ready for you to take a pass. And she kind of stopped at the first chapter and was like, wait, I think that you maybe need to work with like, a big store, a big picture person, a book coach, because there's, there's something in here. This is a really good story, but it's just, I can't just take a pass for like grammar and spelling right now. This needs different kinds of work. And so I started working with a book coach who would sit with me once a week and he would read my writing and ask me questions, kind of like therapy for my book. It was like, Hey, what are you trying to say here? And wait, do you have another chapter about this? Can you combine them? Like, what are you trying to say actually? And it wasn't until I did that that I realized that, oh, this is the roadmap. And that was like two years in. So, you know, that's just a myth, I, I think. <laughs> hmm Yeah, and, you know, just, just start writing. And it doesn't mm-hmm. have to have a destination at the beginning. You just have to start getting it out there. And once you have – once you start writing, I feel like it gets easier to keep writing. I'm like, mm-hmm. like I have days where like like five thousand words will come off my fingertips, and then I have other days where I'm barely able to like about a hundred. <laughs> you know, so you just have to go with yeah. the ebbs and flows, and you just have to start. It's not going to start on its own. And you know, and your it, point you know, about numbers... making making time to write, oh, sorry, yeah. and you know whether you schedule an hour in the morning or afternoon or whatever time of day is. Back for you but even if it's just once a week just need to start getting in that habit of writing because it's not right itself um so yeah having Mm -hmm. having a schedule I like yeah and I think the numbers thing I mean I think that's just one more way to criticize yourself and I mean I actually did kind of start writing the book during um national what is it nano nanorimo nanorimo yeah yeah so I think I actually kind of started picking up my word count during that because I was like, ooh, this is a fun game, and I can, like, you know, add up these words and do X amount of words per day. But, you know, really it doesn't matter how many you're getting out every day. Sometimes for me it was bullet points. Sometimes it was like I'm going to do these bullet points during the day when I have these thoughts, and then I'm going to go back later and write them into thoughts, you know. And, and sometimes that's all you can do, and if you're just – in the right mindset, um, that's a big step forward as well. Just being in the, the telling yourself that I am a writer, even if you're doing other things, you're still a writer. You're still telling a story. It just might take a while and you might have to do it in the evenings or, you know, cramming in five minutes at a time, you know, and you don't know how it's going to look for you. So. Amy, you were able to go back to teaching full time. Um, mm-hmm. How did that journey look? How, how, you know, was it terrifying to go back to work or was it exciting to go back to work? You know, how, how did it play out for you? 
Well, that's definitely when my writing became bullet points. I can tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was, it was terrifying. Um, I was excited because, you know, I'd spent the past couple months being a disabled person and I was excited to drive again and to, you know, um, have my appetite back. I was, you know, putting on more weight again. Um, and I was excited to work with the kids because these were the same kids that I had seen those first five days. And when I got back to the student teaching, um, they pretty much just delayed my student teaching until the next semester. And they said that you have, you have a full year, take as much time as you want, but I wanted to get right back into it because I wanted to have this life that I had pictured for myself. I wanted to be a high school teacher. And so when I got back into student teaching, um, the kids I had were very, very nice. Um, obviously, they had seen me almost die. So like, they, were, they were on the nicer side. You know, they were still kids. They were still teenagers. They still pushed my buttons. But um, I was able to kind of develop my teaching style um, with them. And And then that summer, I – prepped I got a summer teaching job just doing like um you know giving kids extra credits um summer school I taught summer school and then I had my first classroom because I was interviewing like crazy um during the school year and I got my my I secured a job um and I worked really hard to get my own classroom and it was in a really um you know urban school with a lot of kids you know it's a huge school and um I was terrified (laughs) I was uh now battling kind of all these new things I didn't have to deal with before you know sensory overload um sounds were a big thing and you know you're under these fluorescent lights all day with you know a room full of 16 year olds and they're all tapping their pencils and eating Cheetos and you know I mean they're kids you know it's unpredictable you put a brain injured person in this unpredictable environment. And I'm sure that my therapists were like, Oh my God, like, <laughs> woo, you know, like you need to take a nap uh, in between classes. And it's like, that's not, that's not how it goes in the, in this environment. And so I really had to um, test myself. I really, it got, it was really difficult um, by the end of my first year. I think I slept for like, two weeks after school got out <laughs> first year of teaching. Um, and I was like, wow, I can't believe I survived that. That was really intense. And then I went back for the second year and was just feeling like, you know, the book that by that point, the book was almost a full book, you know, and I was leading this double life and um, teaching wasn't getting any easier. <laughs> Um, and that was kind of when I started to think about, uh, what else I could do and if teaching was going to be healthy for me moving forward, because I, not that I was worried actually about my brain re hemorrhaging. They said that was very, very rare for that to occur. They took care of everything and didn't see any problems with that, but I was personally afraid for myself, um, and my health that maybe I was going to injure myself, you know, just, um, I was getting so tired that I would be falling asleep at the wheel, um, driving to school and then on the way home. And so I just kind of thought, you know, maybe I should think of a different career for a second because I don't know if I can keep this up with, you know, the brain and the fatigue and just the daily life of being a teacher. It just didn't seem to to work for me. 
And so there me? what? Oh, there you are. Yep. What did you end up doing that? Are you still teaching or did you switch paths? I moved to New York City um, and got my book published and became a stand-up comedian, <laughs> um, which is probably not the path that I, you know, was probably <laughs> the healthiest brain choice for, for my poor little brain. But by that point, I really wanted more. I wanted um, to see this story come to life. I had been pitching the book to agents for a couple of years with, you know, just no success and decided that I was going to pack up the classroom and move across the country from Colorado to Brooklyn and see if I could shake things up, see if I could get a writing job. Um, ended up getting a book deal pretty quickly just from networking uh, in New York City. It's a very um, big city. There's a lot of different people here, and I was able to meet somebody um, who connected me to my publisher. So, um Everything that I'm doing now is because I took that leap of faith um, to try something new. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, I think often people get stuck in the past, who they were, where they were going at the time of their injury. I mean, like you, you know, you were just out of school hoping to be a high school teacher. Um, and now you're on a totally different path. And that's okay. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I think we need to looking at mirror and look forward. Hey, so I'm no longer going to be a teacher. I can't do this. It's too hard for me. What can I do? Oh, I'm going to, you know, mm-hmm. follow my dreams that I'm in New York City. Um, you know, for some people that might be totally crazy, but for you, it completely mm-hmm. works. So <laughs> it might it have been crazy, crazy, by crazy the way. It, it is crazy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think it's, it's such just so important to know that just because you've been through this and you might not be able to do exactly what you're doing, um, there's still things you can do and to look at what you're able to do now. And, you know, look at you, you're a stand-up comic. Who knew, right? <laughs> yeah. And I, I would say that like for people, that, that is a serious thing I hear with survivors is like the loss of like the life that you had before. And it's true. It's a real loss. You really have to mourn that. And let yourself feel mm-hmm. that because, yeah, it, it's it's not great to feel that you've lost a part of yourself. But you can also reinvent yourself and do things that I, I never would have considered. I never would have considered or thought that I could survive in this city or thought that I could have, you know, what life can you live now because of your injury that you couldn't have lived before? You know, and for me, it's just opened up this world of opportunities that when people say, oh, I'm sorry that your head exploded, I'm like, well, I'm sorry that you think it's a bummer because I'm actually living my best life. Like, I'm I'm uh, doing things I, I never would have dreamed of, and I'm so happy because of that. And so I think it's about changing your frame of mind and yeah. what can you do now because because of what's happened to you. Absolutely. Well, Mimi, thank you so much for being here today. This has been an enlightening conversation, and I really appreciate you being here and sharing your journey with our listeners. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, and um, if anyone um, wants to keep up or if they're going to be in Scotland uh, this summer, they can come and see me perform the um, the live adaptation of the book. It's going to be pretty crazy. <laughs> 
Awesome. Well, best of luck to you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode with Mimi. Um, quite, quite inspiring. And I hope that you have some golden nuggets to take away from this, this afternoon. Again, just a reminder, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Zellmer. And on Facebook, don't forget to join Amy's TBI tribe. And another big thank you to Midwest Functional Neurology Center, the concussion doctors you can trust in the Midwest. Find them online at mnfunctionalneurology.com. And you can always find previous episodes of the podcast at facesoftbi.com. Thank you all for listening and thank you for being a part of my journey. Have a great day, everyone, and I will see you again next time.